Welcome to Season 2 of the Girls That Create podcast on Word of Mom Radio. This show is about parenting, creativity, and helping the next generation of creators become who they want to be. I'm your host, Erin Prather Stafford. To kick off this season, we're bringing back author Jessica Leahy to talk about her first book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. The Gift of Failure focuses on the critical school years when parents must learn to allow their children to experience the disappointment and frustration that occur from life's inevitable problems so that they can grow up to be successful, resilient, and self-reliant adults. Leahy is a teacher, speaker, writer, and mom, and has written about education, parenting, and child welfare for The Atlantic, Vermont Public Radio, and The New York Times. She is also the author of The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. Welcome to the Girls That Create podcast, Jessica Leahy. Thank you so, so much for having me. We're so thrilled you could come back on the podcast. And I'm so happy why, to be here. Yes, and while you're here, um, we're to talk about your other book, The Gift of Failure. And I want to start, of course, at the beginning. What inspired you to write it? So I was a middle school teacher. Well, I've been, I was a teacher for 20 years. I have taught every grade from 6th to 12th, and I thought I would teach high school forever and ever and ever. And then someone asked me to possibly teach middle school, and I fell so in love with middle school and was teaching middle school for a couple of years. And if you know anything about middle school students, you know that they have underdeveloped brains, too much to do for the amount of brain space that they have and the executive function and all, you know, the stuff up at the top of their brains hasn't quite connected yet. And so the fun thing about being a middle school teacher is watching kids screw up over and over and over again and giving them the support they need to figure out how to do differently next time, how to be different, how to do better next time. And um, increasingly, the parents were either intervening so that there was no need to learn any strategies for how to do differently next time, or parents were just a sort of a lot of learning opportunities were being taken away from kids, either because they weren't feeling any consequences of making a mistake, or because the parents had sort of ensured that the mistake would never happen, or the parents were just on top of the kids and increasing their anxiety in the classroom, which we teachers know that if you want to shut down the learning centers of the brain, increasing anxiety in kids is one of the fastest way to do that. So I was sort of, as I joke, on a very high horse about this. I was feeling like, oh, I'm the noble teacher and you guys are screwing it up for me. But I had this sneaking suspicion that something that was going on with overparenting and I wasn't sure what and our sort of worship of grades and points and scores was messing not just with motivation. We sort of understand where that's coming from because thanks to like Dan Pank and Edward DC and all that sort of stuff but that it was actually messing with their ability to learn. And I got to spend two years researching that, and it turns out that's the case. And that some of the ways that we parent actually can definitely affect how kids learn over the long run. And, you know, as someone who had middle school-aged kids at the time, you know, I needed to understand that from a parenting perspective and from a school perspective. So it was a kind of urgent to me at the time. And I love in the book you talk about that we are experiencing a pendulum. 
And I would love to hear Mm -hmm. the history about that, about why things were kind of done one way and now we've swung the other direction and why that explains why failure has become almost a dirty word in American parenting. Well, we can't have failure in my my children. No failures. There must be zero failures. And that's not at all life or logical or even attainable. Well, I think there's sort of the big picture. You know, we uh, we as a society tend to operate, you know, on this weird pendulum swing, you know, whether that's in politics. I mean, look at the past decade with, you know, the presidency and the going one direction and then way in the other. We tend to overcorrect, you know, and so um, it's been really interesting to watch. You know, if you look at the big, big history of, of parenting, um, you know, we te- people tend to lose kids to illness and we would have eight kids and six would survive and kids were put to work really young. And there were just a lot of reasons that we as parents couldn't afford to invest quite so much energy in every single child or, or, you know, for lots of different reasons. And then parenting and child rearing became like a, a medicalized thing. So that was another thing that happened. And we weren't supposed to take any advice from like grandparents. We were supposed to only listen to doctors. And then Dr. Spock came along and told us we could trust ourselves, which was a revelation. And yet that trust, that was great, but it was also super scary because like, I have no qualifications. I didn't take a class on being a parent before I was a parent. So, and then we don't get great on our parenting. And as someone who went to school for way too long, you know, I need to know how I'm doing in my parents. I need CNN, constant updates, but I don't get those. So what do I have to look to? Well, I have my kid's growth chart or my kid's grades. That has to be some sort of evaluation of my parenting. And, and, you know, we now economically, our kids can't expect to do better than we did. Now college is such a massive investment. So many people can't afford it. Uh, and then on top of that, there are these micro pendula, I guess, along the way, like COVID happened and we couldn't express our need to control things outside of the house because we couldn't control anything, right? We couldn't control our work, our kids' school, whether or not relatives lived or died. We couldn't, some people couldn't even see relatives before they died. I mean, it was awful. And so we started, everyone's in the home together and then we're like, okay, I can't control anything out there. I'm going to control everything in here. You know, so there's the big picture and then there's the smaller swings. I think we tend to be, you know, our lower brain is the part of our brain that really handles the reacting as opposed to managing our emotions and being a little more objective and being mindful about our choices. But in high intensity situations like COVID, like the small emergencies of like, oh my gosh, my kid left their homework at home or, oh my gosh, my kid left their cleats at home and this afternoon is a super important practice ahead of tomorrow's game or whatever. We tend to operate in those emergencies and not in the sort of big picture long term of parenting, which is, you know, do we want our kids to be perfect today or to do this task perfectly today? Or do we want them to be able to do it themselves over the long term? And so the antidote for that weird pendulum swing and the working out of the emergencies is to think more long term with your parenting. You know, where do my kid be in six months? Where do I want them to be in a year? Where do I want them to be in five years? And I think that's just the nature of who we are as human beings. And it's on us to try to think a little more objectively, which is hard to do. And it's hard to not be emotional about our kids. It's hard. All of the things we do, we do for the most part out of love and out of a need for them to want to do well. It's really hard to not operate from that place. And yet, 
if we want our kids to be ready for the world instead of trying to prepare the world for our kids, which I think it's important to do too, obviously. I think it's really important to try to make the world a better place. There's lots of ways of saying this, you know, we can't prepare the world to adapt to our kids. We have to prepare our kids to adapt to the world. And that requires a longer view. And what message are we sending our kids when we're doing the hovering and the rescuing? There's also that nonverbal communication going yeah. on with, your, with our best intentions. Yeah. To just make the day better for them. But at the same yeah. time, we are communicating something very important to them. Yeah, there are a lot of layers to this. So, you know, the first one is I say in the beginning of the gift of failure that my nine-year-old at the time couldn't tie her own shoes. And that was because I just kept doing it for her when it was hard for her. And so then I would kind of step in and say, oh, I'll just do that for you. It's faster or whatever. And what she in the sense was hearing from me was, I just don't think you can do that yourself. So I'll just go ahead and do it for you. And I was doing that around lots of things. You know, I like the dishwasher loaded a certain way, or I like vacuuming done a certain way, or I like whatever done a certain way. And so it was just better, easier, faster, less complicated. It took less time if I just did it myself. And yet what I was then doing was undermining her own feelings of self-efficacy and competence when I was doing that. But then on the other hand, there's also, I was fostering this thing called learned helplessness, which was every time she would kind of collapse and start to act a little frustrated. I would go in there and do it for her. And she began to rely on that. And so I was actually creating a kid it's called learned helplessness for a reason. You know, I was teaching her to be helpless and that was working for her. And in a weird way, emotionally was working for me. I would love it when she needs me. I want to feel needed. I want to feel loved. And yet I was sort of cutting her off the knees in terms of creating a kid that can go out there into the world and have a sense of self-efficacy, have a sense of competence. And it actually wasn't until I wrote The Addiction Inoculation that I realized, oh, wait, this stuff dovetails because a sense of self-efficacy is incredibly protective against substance use. So not only is it important from like a competence and having independent kids that can go out there and do stuff on their own, it's also really important for substance use prevention. It's hard because I've been in that situation as well, where even the shoe tying is such a perfect example yeah. because you're mm -hmm. like, I have to get to work. You have to get to school. Why is it taking yeah. so long for you to tie your shoes? <laughs> yeah. And yet, and yet. When it comes to things like, you know, one of the common questions I get is getting out of the door in the morning is so painful, like mornings and getting out of the door. If you can take some moments when, you know, stress is not high, when it's not the emergency we talked about, and you go to your kids and you say, you know what, I'm feeling really stressed out in the morning when we're trying to get out of the door. And I can only imagine that you're feeling some of that too. And I know that it can be hard for me when I'm still a little groggy and I, you know, I haven't fully woken up yet to remember how to get out the door. So I was thinking, how about we come up with some things that can help us? What do you think would be some ways to help you remember the stuff you need to remember to go out the door in the morning? And the solutions that kids can come up with, I've seen kids who aren't reading yet do pictures of things that they need and sticking those next to the door or creating checklists for themselves or, you know, whatever that system is that they come up with for themselves, because that's where you get buy-in, you know, and then I create my own system. Like I show them, here's my checklist of things I need before I can get out the door. And that helps me get out the door. Creating that system is so amazing because now that kid of mine that couldn't get out of the door in the morning and forgot everything, she now has her own system she created in fourth grade. 
because of a moment in the gift of failure where I didn't take her homework to her when she had left it at home. She's now in college and she uses the system she came up with that day, checklists, as the system that she used all the way through the rest of elementary school and middle school and high school and now into college. So now, like even a month after, even six months after, getting out in the morning was a heck of a lot less stressful. And present me was so grateful to past me (laughs) for having that moment of like sitting down, helping support her in her ability to come up with a system. So current you might think, oh my gosh, what a time suck that would be. How do I set aside time? There's another opportunity for this that works really great with kids that are maybe, you know, 10 or older. Tell them that your flight leaves like an hour earlier than it does. Get to the airport super early get to the door and say, okay, where do we go now? Because your kid eventually is going to have to take a flight on their own. And there is a lot to remember. Like, when do you need the boarding pass? When do you need your ID? Where do we go first? What do I have a bag to check? Do I not? And we did this with both of our kids and said, okay, you're getting us through this airport experience. We have plenty of extra time to do it. So you don't need to be nervous. Let's go. And that was the moment my kids learned how to get through an airport on their own. We're going to take a short break to hear from our sponsors. I'm Scarlett Johansson. My family relied on public assistance to help provide meals for us. These meals fueled my involvement in theater and the arts as a child, which fostered my love for acting. The Feeding America network of food banks helps millions of people put food on the table. You can join the movement to end hunger by donating, volunteering, and advocating. Because when people are fed, futures are nourished. Join the movement to end hunger at feedingamerica.org slash act now. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. And we're back with the Girls That Create podcast on Word of Mom Radio. My guest today is Jessica Leahy, author of The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. And that feeds into my next question is, why are children who possess <laughs> confidence through experience safer in the world? Well, it turns out that confidence and competence are two different things. And confidence is optimism, which is great. I love myself an optimistic kid. I love a confident kid. That's great. But those things are easily burst, whereas competence implies skill based on actual experience doing something, right? So if a kid has actual competence skills, you can't take that away from them, right? So like if my kid knows that they can get through an airport, they're going to be like, okay, I can do this. But if they're confident that they can get through an airport on their own, but they have no actual experience doing it, they'll probably, hopefully, if they can talk to people and figure it out, but they might miss their flight is all I'm saying. So, but if your kid feels competent because they have actual skills, that is something that you can never take away from them. It adds to their self-efficacy, which as I already said, helps prevent substance use. It helps them feel like they can make it in the world on their own, as opposed to just, oh, I'm pretty sure this is going to go great because mom and dad said it's going to go great, you know? It's important, too, I think, as parents, we have to remember how many times in our lives have we been in situations and we had to figure out solutions. We had to think about workarounds right. and how to adjust. And we do want our kids to develop that skill set. And you have to remind yourself that doesn't just happen. There's not like a wand no. and poof, you just have it. You have to right. go through your own, either it worked or it didn't work. 
Well, and these experiences, the airport thing does not come up every day. So you have to say there are going to be limited moments in, uh, you know, a kid's lifetime before they are off on their own that they have the opportunity to learn this thing. So do you want them to learn it with your support and with you there and and feeling a little less tense and, and freaked out? Or do you want to just keep putting that off until when, you know, I don't know when those opportunities are going to come up. So I say take advantage of those things while you have them. Plan ahead for them. So for a parent who's listening to this, reading your book, thinking about this, going, okay, I'm ready. I am going to wean myself off of needing to save my kids. I'm going to do it. (laughs) What are the next steps that they can take, though, to say, all right, I'm committed. And then how can I help guide my kids and kind of have this shift to say, guess what? You're going to now be more in charge of yourself in figuring this stuff out. Well, first of all, you need a new sort of headspace to occupy. So, uh, you know, what I like to tell parents, especially like the speaking events I do around this is here's the very first thing you can do to switch your thinking a little bit is do that constant refrain of do I want them to do it perfectly my way this time or do I want them to be able to do it themselves next time? And as a parent of now young adults, I can tell you that like yesterday, this has happened yesterday. My daughter is awful at cleaning the bathroom or and especially if she's like a rush to go back to college. She's like her focus is on packing her stuff and packing the car and getting out of the house. So like her room's going to be a disaster. The bathroom's going to be a disaster. It's going to be gross. My husband comes down yesterday and he said, did you clean the bathroom? And I said, no, why is it clean? And cause she left yesterday and he said, yes, the bathroom is clean. And neither one of us asked her to do that, but that's only because many, many, many times over, we walked her through what it means to clean a bathroom and, and why you do that for other people and why it's really rude when you're at someone else's house to leave them with your mess. So this is like this constant refrain. I really like when they get to the point where they can do it themselves next time. Oh my gosh, it's it's like a miracle has happened and it takes a long time. The other thing I do constantly is think about, just think more long-term as a parent. Like I said, where do I want them to be in six months? Where do I want them to be in a year? My two young adults are still emerging, still becoming. And my older kid, 25, texted us just the other day because of an emergency came up. And I didn't just tell him what to do. I told him why you do these things. And constantly thinking in the why, constantly thinking of, oh, and I asked to switch it over to the full family chat instead of just our one-on-one chat so that his sister could learn from what was happening to him at that moment. I said, this is going to be an expensive mistake. We call those things tuition around here. I just paid tuition for something I didn't know. I said, let's expand that by having your sister learn it from you so that hopefully this won't happen to her. You know, talk about our mistakes, flatten the learning curve for other people, the other siblings, whatever that is, all that kind of stuff. So do I want it done perfectly this time or do I want them to be able to do it themselves next time? And uh, where do I want my kid to be in the future, six months, a year, five years, 10 years, wherever that is? Constantly bringing your thinking back to that really helps me a lot. One of the stories in the book that I really appreciated was a parent who was concerned that their child, in their words, no longer loved learning. They were feeling very defeated by that. And what it was actually turning out is that so much pressure had been put on the child and that we all kind of do this. I think this again leans back into what you're saying is that as parents, we almost want little measurements that we're doing a good job. Mm -hmm. We want a hat in the back to say, good job. You have that straight A student, but we don't understand this, that, And the schools want that too, right? Because obviously they're getting measured by the success of students. But all that together is 
combining and making it our ch- kids anxious about if their grades aren't perfect. And it's almost like you yeah. have, they go, I feel the extreme of a, a pendulum in some way. Either you have the extreme of everything must be straight high A's or, well, I'm never going to get high stride, you know, high stride A's, so I'm just not even going to try with it. I'm not even going to work at it. Yeah, it's a two-pronged problem. Um, yes, it was the the pressure that was being put on her. And, you know, she had very accomplished parents. She had very accomplished older siblings. And there was a lot of pressure around that. So there was that. But it was also because grades, points, and scores, all of these things, honors, those are all extrinsic motivators. And we know for a fact, we know this after 50 years of really quality research around this, that extrinsic motivators like grades, points, scores, money for grades, uh, punishment in retaliation for low grades, all that sort of stuff, surveillance of your kid, reading their emails, reading their texts, watching the portal, the, you know, grading portal at the at the school. And I'm not saying we can't use these things. I'm just saying, excuse me, we need to call them what they are and, and think about how we're using them. Those extrinsic motivators undermine long-term motivation to want to do the things we want kids to do. Anytime you're trying to control someone to get them to do a task, extrinsic motivators, you know, don't help. They also undermine creativity, by the way. So for long-term focus, creativity, goal setting, you know, anything that requires long-term focus, uh, goal orientation, time management, resource management, all of these things, offering extrinsic motivators actually undermines that. So that's a two-pronged problem. So we have to start thinking more about intrinsic motivation, getting kids to want to learn for the sake of the learning itself. And it's not simple, and it, but it requires giving kids more autonomy. It requires, which is just about choice and about control. You know, instead of saying, you know, do you want to wear a hat today? You say, you know, do you want to wear the red hat or the blue hat? Or instead of assigning one book, you assign five and say you get to choose which one you want to read, that kind of thing. That's a teacher thing. You want to give them more autonomy. You want to help them feel more competent, not just confident. So skill building, mastery, that kind of thing. And then you need to be really connected. And connection doesn't just mean interpersonal connection. It can mean just engagement with the things that they care about, involving them, you know, making sure they know that we're supported no matter what. And we support them for who they are and not who we wish they were and not just based on their performance. You know, we're not just going to love, heap love on our kids based on their performance because that's outcome love and it's really damaging for kids emotionally. I appreciate you bringing up the portal because I'm a guilty parent who has looked at the portal. <laughs> and uh, I actually, having read your book, was like, you know what? The progress reports are sent to my email. I don't have to read the portal. Like, I get the Well, and there's, message, you know, there, I say, you know, for example, I've never used the portal as a parent. I've used it mm-hmm. as a teacher, obviously. But I've never looked at the portal to look at my kids' grades. And that freaks some people out. And I appreciate that. I really, really do. Schools, by not teaching parents how to use it, by foisting it on us and making it seem like it's our job to do that, that's sure. doing a real disservice for parents. So I understand that gives them the heebie, some parents the heebie-jeebies. So an intermediary, you know, intermediate way to do this would be to say, sweetie, I'm going to check the portal on Friday. It's Monday. So between now and Friday, you know, get your ducks in a row, talk to your teachers, find out if there are any mistakes. Hello, we make mistakes. Kids make mistakes. I could enter, instead of entering an 88, enter a 78 or whatever. That has happened. And so give your kids the opportunity to talk to their teachers, get their ducks in a row so that there are no surprises when you log in together on Friday. Or some schools have decided to just open up the portal like at midterm and right before exams or something like that. There are ways to go 
not just cold turkey. I mean, I think it's right. great to go cold turkey, but I think the portal can be a really important tool for kids to take responsibility for their grades and their learning and their conversations with teachers. But it's not our job, especially as kids get older. That should be the kid's responsibility to be the conduit between home and school communications, not ours. And let me fess up. I was a little bit hovering on the portal. So when I say I backed yeah. off, that's what I mean. I'm a little hovering. I admit it. Yeah. Well, I know parents. I've, I've heard from parents who keep it up on the desktop all the time. And oh, just no, no, fresh. not that bad. That wasn't that but bad. But <laughs> I would love to let parents know that at many school systems, depending on what the software is, we can see how long you've spent on the portal. And oh, and we, we talk about it. <laughs> And for parents that are spending an inordinate amount of time on the portal, we're really worried about your kids. We worry not only that they're not learning to communicate with their teachers, we're worried just on behalf of the kid about what's happening at home. I appreciate the chapter that you have about working with teachers and the fact that a parent and teacher need to be on a team together, not working against each other, which is right now it's more (laughs) necessary than ever with everything going on to have that partnership. We need to be a team. We have our common goal is that the kids learn. And if my goal is my kids' grades and your teacher's goal is something other than the learning, then we have a major problem. But the more we can establish that our common goal is what the kids are actually learning as opposed to what the letter or the score or the number or whatever is, I think that's going to go a long way to, you know, helping that relationship. What advice do you have for parents when they're watching their kiddo do their homework and they're like, I want to offer guidance, step in, but I'm going Mm -hmm. to back away and just turn around and walk off. It's hard. Yeah, you don't have to turn around and walk off. A lot of people, they hear what I'm talking about. They think I'm like saying, okay, walk away. It's not your problem. It's only your, that's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, especially for kids who are overly dependent on parents' being directive, telling them exactly what to do and how to do it, you need to wean them off of that. And it happens in teaching as well. Like when a kid raises her hand in class and says she needs help, I'm not going to reteach all of the past unit to her or take her pencil and do it for her. What I'm going to do is say, oh, well, what lessons did you learn from this last one? Or maybe skip this one and go to the next one and then see what you can figure out and come back to this one. Or if you truly can't do this one, write a note for your teacher next to it explaining why you couldn't figure it out. Or do the whole homework assignment and come back to this one. Homework is a mode of communication about what the kid is learning. It is not meant to be framed. It is not meant to be laminated and hung up in the classroom. It's meant to be a tool for the teacher to know how learning is going. And when you muck that up, and it happens, like I used to work with a math teacher who said, this is so odd. I teach algebra, and yet this homework is coming back with trigonometry on it, and I haven't taught trigonometry, and the kid's parent is a math professor. Fascinating. You know, that kind of stuff happens all the time. I used to help kids with their college essays. I can spot from a hundred paces, the sentences that the parents wrote. It's so easy. And if it's easy for me, imagine how easy it is for the person who reads a thousand essay applications to get into X college. They could spot that. I've met with, it was really funny. I've met with students and I said, I tell you what, I'm going to show you which sentences I think your parents wrote and you tell me if I'm right. And the kids just laugh. They're like, yep, check, check, 
check. Yeah, I didn't write those. I'm like, I know it's obvious and it's just not your voice. So let your kid's voice be in that homework, not just from the perspective of, you know, an essay and stuff like that, but your kid needs to learn. And if you step in because you get frustrated, that's not helping them. Absolutely. Why is the gift of failure one of the most difficult yet important gifts your child will ever receive? I love that. That's how you because it's hard. It's so hard. I to throw that at you. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, because we're emotionally invested in not hearing or seeing our kids go, I'm so dumb. I'm never going to figure this out. Or, you know, getting frustrated and giving up. Like, that's the worst, right? And especially since I want my kids to have the gumption to be like, no, I can do this. But on the other hand, I'm really, really vulnerable to watching my kids say, I'm just so stupid. I can't, you know, whatever. Um, And so I want to not encounter that. I don't want my kid to be frustrated. So I want to do an end run around that emotion. But what we know from the research, specifically the research of Wendy Grolnick, is that if we do not allow our kids to feel that sensation of frustration and yet realize that they can manage that feeling through this task, that we are doing them a disservice because some of the most valuable teaching tools I have as a teacher require kids to get frustrated and yet still push through their desirable difficulties. And if they can't feel frustration and they just give up, then they can't benefit from those learning tools. And they're really powerful learning tools. They do, you know, it puts the learning in a more long-term place where they learn it more durably over the long term and more deeply in the short term. And if your kids are not able to do that because they get frustrated really easily and give up, which we help them with, we teach them how to become helpless like that, then they're just not going to have the capacity to learn as much when they're in school. Is there anything you've learned since the gift of failure came out that you would love to include today? Yeah, I mean, it's been almost 10 years and my kids then 15 and 10, you know, are now 20 and 25. And um, I'm finally seeing some of the rewards of that now, not, you know, 10 minutes after I let, you know, ask them to learn that on their own. There have been like opportunities where you know, there have been moments where my kids have said, can you cut it out with the gift of failure thing and just help me with this, which I get. And I love that they're willing to say that to me. And sometimes I do. And sometimes I don't. But like this thing, this emergency that my 25 year old texted us about required a whole bunch of complex skills. And some of those had to do essentially sticking up for himself, self-advocating, covering his butt. It was a big deal. And yet, I saw him using tools that we started trying to teach him when he was six. I mean, self-advocacy at the very least, standing up for yourself when someone is doing something to you that feels wrong, whether that's touching you in a way that makes you uncomfortable or putting you in a position that makes you feel coerced. Those are all skills we started talking about when they were really young. And it's the reason that the best substance use prevention starts in pre-K and kindergarten. Speaking up for yourself, self-advocating, having refusal skills, those are all things we start really young. And so just being more patient, honestly, is the short answer to that question, that the rewards that, you know, you're going to see from this kind of investment don't always come right away. Sometimes it takes a while for them to show up, but boy, it's sweet when they do. That's great to hear because I think that's one of the hardest parts of being a parent is you're thinking, is this all going to play out in everyone's <laughs> favor down the road? Because I feel like I'm yeah. doing the same thing or trying to teach the same thing a thousand different ways and a thousand different times. And is this really making its way in? <laughs> yeah. And, and like I said, sometimes you realize down the line, oh, you know what? Think back. In fact, this is what a friend of mine said. She said, you know what? I was really frustrated with my kid. Um, this was my very last column I ever wrote for the New York Times was about this. 
I was really frustrated with my kid because they seemed to be, quote, forgetting a lot of things that they, I thought I'd already taught them and that they'd nailed. And she said, yeah, but think about where your kid was a year ago. So that's my constant refrain, you know, no matter how frustrated I am with where they are now or a lack of progress now, it's really important to think back to a year ago or five years ago. It's why when I used to teach, I used to keep writing samples from even years before. So I could say, I know progress in writing happens so slowly, but let's look at where you were a year ago or two years ago or three years ago, whatever. Look at how far you've come. And I do that with my own writing sometimes too, when I need to remind myself that, no, you've got this, you know how to do this. This isn't like your first time writing an essay. It's important. And it's learning and becoming is not like this beautiful linear slope. It takes a long time sometimes, and there are ups and downs along the way. So having some patience with ourselves and having some patience with our kids' you know, cognitive development, which definitely doesn't happen on a linear slope, that's all really important to remember. Parenting is messy, and that's okay. It so is. And yet, man, in the good moments when you're like, oh, look at what they can do by themselves, it's like, wow, makes your head explode. It's just great. Jessica Leahy, thank you for being with us today on the Girls That Create podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And I hope the dog that's sleeping in my lap, I hope uh, his snores were not too audible to your audience. They were nearly <laughs> audible. For a moment there, I thought, was, I thought maybe cicadas, but then I was like, it's not cicadas. No, no. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a dog sleeping in my lap. It was the only way that he would stay quiet for the interview. Hey, so. You know what? <laughs> Not there all that. We love sleeping puppies. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Parent, parenting and dog ownership is messy. So there you go. Exactly. To all of you tuning in, thank you for joining us on the Girls That Create podcast on Word of Mom Radio. Who knew that the words confidence and competence were so hard to say apart on the air? Thank you, Jessica Leahy, for translating the Texan in my voice. Be sure to listen to our invaluable chat about her other book, The Addiction Inoculation from Season 1. We'll have the link in the show notes. Here's our closing theme song by Smith Sisters and the Sunday Drivers. Till next time, this is Aaron Prather Stafford. She is sure, she is sure, she is strong, she is strong.